Today's episode is sponsored by College Board. Because your child's road to college is full of twists and turns, and College Board can guide you along the way. Visit them at sat.org backslash your teen. You'll be glad you did. Welcome to Your Teen with Steph and Sue. I'm Stephanie Silverman. And I'm Sue Borison. And we were just musing about not being able to use the remote controls to any devices at home. So I'm going to just throw myself right under the bus. I honestly have no idea how to put the TV on. Well, I take that back. I can put the TV on from there. It's a complete bleep, bleep, bleep. I... Netflix could not operate on the TV. I can't, a DVD, I don't know, that's probably showing our age. I don't know if anybody else puts DVDs in. But I, I, have, I don't even know how to use it. I feel like a grandma. I don't even know how to explain it. But I have, first of all, I have very little control over the TV. I feel like it's not my domain, that everybody else is always watching something, and I fall to the bottom of the list. And even if I have something on, somebody else comes into the room, and it's not necessarily a child. It's often a husband. And then they change the channels. If I'm in, like, I have the invisibility cloak on. I'm like, you know, I was watching that. Like, why is that not, I don't, is that me? Is that, do you have that too? Never. No, yeah, I don't own the TV at all. And no one would change it while I was watching, but I don't get a vote. Like, if there's a room Mm. full of people, I don't get a vote for some reason. And I'm always a little curious about that. But there seems to be like a, a culture where everyone knows the show that they're watching to me- together because I don't watch TV that much. And so when I come in and say, can we watch Ellen? They're like, no, no. We're in the middle of games, Game of Thrones. We're all watching it. And I'm like, but I don't want to watch it. <laughs> and really, the other problem is that I don't watch enough TV to understand how to switch from whatever things they're doing to yes, make it like go from HDMI yeah, one, yeah, yeah, to one to three to whatever. Yes. But I, I'm a little fascinated. I, I have to believe that we don't understand our TV because with all the remote capability, in order to switch, you have to get up and go to the side of the TV and push a button. Is that possible? <laughs> Wait a minute. That's what's happening in your house, so uh-huh. that's how you do it. No, no. That's, that's the what's instructions. Happening. You can tell... Google. Uh-huh. You can tell Google to do everything in our house. Like you you know, you can tell Google to turn on the TV, you can ask what time it is, but you have to get out of your seat to switch from HDMI. No, that okay, so that doesn't make sense. It doesn't right? make sense because yeah. I okay, no, not that I can do it, but I have witnessed, <laughs> I've been a witness to people changing from HDMI 1 to 2 to whatever. Wait, I was just what all does that stand for, do you know? I don't know. High definition mom. <laughs> I don't get it. Well, here's the other thing. We were talking to friends a couple weeks ago about different series they were watching. This was the conversation. What's everyone watching? And then it was a show that was maybe on Amazon Prime. I said, well, we have Amazon Prime. Okay, well, then you can watch. And I'm like, no, but I don't know how to get it on my TV. And they're like, oh, well, you need a Roku. I need a Roku because I don't, apparently I don't have a smart TV. So this was the whole oh, conversation. I'm so sorry. I know. So we don't have a smart TV. Your and I'm too cheap. score wasn't high enough. <laughs> That's funny. Maybe I should pay someone to take my SATs for me. <laughs> um, okay, now we're now, funny. <laughs> uh-huh, now we're very funny because it's true. Okay, should we 
move into the the topic of the day. Yes. Okay, so one of the things that we talk about all the time in our space of raising teenagers is what seems to have been a period of failing our kids, letting them grow up without skills to, to survive as adults. And everyone's talking about it right now. You just have to open up any paper to find something about how we helicopter... They don't have launch skills, all of that, the new language that comes around how we are overparenting our kids and not getting them ready for life. So let's just talk a little bit about why it's so important to prep our kids for moving out of the house. There's a whole long discussion happening about adulting our kids. It's now a verb. And it's such an awesome verb because really, if we think about being handed this newborn baby in the hospital and what our dreams are for that kid. Maybe not at that moment, but they should be. Our dreams should always be looking toward the moment they leave us, which is painful and hard. But in fact, we should be thinking about it because what do we do every day of our lives to help push them a little bit away from us so that they launch in a way that's successful? And it's hard to do that, really, really hard to do that. But in adolescence, I think it gets a little easier because it's closer and we see that they're almost out the door. So Steph and I are going to talk about what are the things that that we did and and some other people, like there are people who teach us what we want to do as parents and people who teach us what we don't want to do as parents. So I had the good fortune of learning what I didn't want to do from one of my friends who had numerous examples of, what do we call it, rescuing her kids. They'd leave lunch home, often drove to school three times because the three kids could never be ready at the same moment. And my all-time favorite was applying to college because she used the word we. (laughs) We're applying to this college. We finished the college essay. In fact, we submitted the college application. And so I always thought, yeah, that's not going to be me. I'm not doing that. And so I did have opportunities to put it to the test. And I guess mine feels kind of braggy. I don't know if I should be telling it, like times where I did it right. Because I really, in the world of revisionism, I can't think of the times when I also, I mean, I took my kids' lunches to school. I probably rescued them. To me, it feels like the it's more the patterns of things, right? Listen, I forget things all the time. So right. I don't mind. I call home and I'll say to one of the kids, oh, my God, is the flat iron off? That's like my favorite one, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, which it mostly is except for the time I didn't call home and it wasn't. But <laughs> it, right, because we all forget things. So that occasional one, I think that shows that we're all flawed and we have a lot on our minds and we forget and things. And we love it's, our kids, And right? we love our kids. Yeah. It's the repeated where yeah. I agree. Like, you know, I, I will talk to people like, oh, yeah, well, I take his lunch to school three times a week. I'm thinking, you know what will happen if you don't. That kid's going to remember it the next day. <laughs> <laughs> to me, it's not, I think it's more of the, I was thinking more of like the, the when you were talking about adulting, my head immediately went to the things that you want to teach them that aren't so big that they can just learn along the way. So like one thing I remember when the kids were little and one of my friends who has four kids had said to me, something came up about loading the dishwasher. And she said, oh yeah, the kids are loading. And her kids were little. They were probably like 10, 8, 6, and 4 or 12, 10. I can't remember. And I'm like, you must end up with a lot of chip dishes. And she said, well, you have to decide what's more important, that they're going to load the dishwasher, unload it, whatever it was, or that your dishes. I'm like, that is such a good comment. Yeah. And so I did. I took her. I followed her lead. Uh And that 
chip dishes, but I also have kids who can load and unload a dishwasher, right? Yay so, you. yay me. What a win. <laughs> what right, a so, win. So, we're just going to be honest that we're going to take a moment and brag about yeah. the times where we have yes. launched our kids and adulted our kids. So, I felt that getting your license was a huge adult responsibility. Like, that is as grown up as you can get. And we do it at a pretty young age. Like, where we live, you can get your permit at 15 and a half. That's pretty young. From my oldest to my youngest, I did not get involved in the process other than teaching them to drive. If they, I felt like if you can't make the appointment, schedule it, get all the paperwork together, I, I just wasn't sure that you, it was, you could manage the responsibility of driving. And I probably did it out of the first time, maybe out of a little laziness and, like, you take care of it. But then I really saw, like, wow, they should be able to do this. And so I, I did it for all five kids, and they all got their licenses literally on the day that they could um, and made the appointments and wanted that freedom. So for me, that was, like, one of those things that uh, who remembers what the impetus for for it was the first time, but it did play out really well. Well, and I took your lead. I think I've said this before because your fourthborn is the age of my firstborn. And so I remember you going through all the driving with them. And I'm like, oh, she's so brilliant. That is so smart. And then we arrive at the permit. I think Zach was getting his permit. And we arrive on a Monday. They don't do permits on a Monday because he didn't look that up. And I just, right? I mean, because I'm like, okay, that's so good. Sue said, let them take the lead. So smart. I just kind of drove him. or he, Yeah, I must have driven him. Obviously, he didn't have his permit. Then the second time we went back. And they asked for his social—this time on like a Tuesday. Maybe the next day, probably. They asked for a social security card. Yeah, we didn't have that. Because yeah, I didn't look at it, right? Because yeah, but I do you try- think, do you, do you wish you had taken away those two experiences from him? Or you, do you no, feel I like No, I totally was- don't. I was just so put out at the time because I'm like, oh, god damn it. You know? Because yeah. it was more driving for me, but whatever. But I do think, yes— well, I mean, I, to me, it's a little bit like we are actually going to get to talk to Wendy Mogul in a, in a, on another episode. Oh, yeah. And um, she wrote The Blessings of a Skin Knee and The Blessings of a B-minus. And I think about it all the time. Like, mm. what? so what did you actually suffer from driving two extra times to the BMV? Nothing, right? Nothing. But the frustration means that, like, a lesson was learned there instead of you jumping in and saving him before that happened. Yeah, like, yeah. he probably looked—he, you know, he missed the documents for the next time, although I would argue that there was a period of time where you could never get it right when you were getting, <laughs> going for your permit and going passport. for your passport. You could never, never. have the right documentation. It's and totally actually, true. I think the new driver's license, like, I don't—what's it called? Universal or something? I don't even know. There's a new driver's license that's going to be, I think— required oh. at the at, at airports and yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah, So uh, I've heard of many people going and having to go a second time. Oh, it's God, like no matter how me. many things you, yeah, right. You look at the list and it says bring this or this. Don't do the or, do the and. Yes. I'm thinking of places <laughs> we hate to go, which could be a whole nother topic. Post where, office. I was just going to say where Sue would pay me <laughs> mucho dollars to go and she would pretty much give me maybe a firstborn for to go to the post office. Like, Could you please just go? Now we have someone who does it for us, which is so lovely. I've been thinking about how our kids prepare for a sport, conditioning in the off-season, and practicing every day for a few months before the games begin. Taking the SAT is really no different. If your teen really wants to do their best, it's because they have practiced the timing and the questions. There's a good chance the first few times your teen practices, their timing will be off, and they'll likely be nervous about this test they have heard has high stakes. 
But there's great news in this story thanks to College Board, our sponsor. Your kid can prepare for the SAT for free with official SAT practice on Khan Academy. They use your kid's previous SAT, PSAT, or PSAT 10 results to give them personalized practice recommendations and a schedule that works for them. It's super easy to set up and keeps them on track by sending reminder emails about when they should be practicing according to the schedule they built. There are so many resources on this site, thousands of practice questions, video tutorials, even full-length practice tests. I really love how it's all in one spot, puts my kid in charge, and it's free of charge. Check out sat.org backslash your team. You'll be glad you did. And thanks to our sponsor, College Board. So we've adopted the word adulting as a verb. I love it. I think it's such a great word. But I, I actually think the origin has to go to Julie Lithcutt-Hames. She wrote a book called How to Raise an Adult, and which should be a goal of all of ours. When she wrote that book, it went viral. She was the dean of students at Stanford University. And what she was seeing was that students were coming to Stanford, you know, top two schools in the country, top three schools in the country, academically so overprepared and incredibly skilled, but in life skills, just underprepared, not ready to leave home, not ready to live on their own. And it actually was affecting their ability to succeed in college. So she writes this book and launches a whole new career for herself. She's everywhere right now. And we're so grateful and excited to have her on our podcast. And Julie, I don't know if you know this, but I was kind of the intro on the CBS segment that you were just on after the college scandal broke. They spoke to one mother who I guess was the helicopter mom and then one mother who I think looked a little less crazy and I was glad it was me. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. Good job. So we're so happy to have you here. And your conversation about how to raise an adult is really touching a chord with everybody. And so we're so grateful you kind of started the conversation for all of us. Wow, thank you. I feel like I joined the conversation that was already underway, but I, my vantage point as a college dean and as a mom in Silicon Valley, I think gave me maybe a sharper lens on what was happening and the harm of it. So, Also, we don't see our kids once they leave home. So you were a window into a world of things going awry. The, the first thing I'd like to ask you about is, um, and, and you started to answer it, is what prompted you to go and write the book? Yeah, so uh, I was the dean of freshmen at Stanford from 2002 to 2012, and every year of those 10 brought an additional set of parents who felt the need to be involved in the management of day-to-day life of their college student. And frankly, at the outset of these behaviors, which we began observing even in the late 90s on our campus, we laughed at the parents because we just thought, this is absurd. Why do you need to track your kids' deadlines? Why do you need to talk with a professor about a grade? Why do you need to register your quote-unquote child for class? This is someone who could have been in the army right now or the workplace. <laughs> Instead, they're on this campus where there's a lot of supports and resources. Why don't you trust your kid has any skills? We stopped laughing as the number of parents who behaved this way grew. It really became quite worrisome because they were clogging up a system that was designed to be a set of interactions between college students and faculty and administrators. And then I began to really connect the dots and see, oh, these students who have parents who can't let go, 
seem to not have the skills, seem to not have the drive, frankly, to do for themselves. They're very accustomed to being handled and helped and fixed and managed. And I worried for their sake, hey, kid, what's to become of you if you never know how to hashtag adult? I mean, this is a term they themselves coined as they went out into the world. Millennials, I didn't coin that term, they did, but I had that sense that, hey, you don't know how to be an adult and that's going to be a problem for you and maybe for all of us as a society, because if a whole swath of you don't know how to do this, how are you going to lead our homes, our schools, our government, our institutions of, of higher education, our businesses, our nonprofits? And so I was very critical. And then, and I was giving speeches and saying, let go, let go, let go. And then I came home one night after kind of seven years of preaching to Stanford parents, let go. I came home one night to my own kids who were then 10 and eight, leaned over my son's plate at dinner and began cutting his chicken. And that was my come to Jesus (laughs) aha moment. Like I am one of those parents because I realized you can't let go of your 18-year-old if you're cutting the meat of a 10-year-old or put differently. There are a heck of a lot of skills you have to instill in your child or your child has to develop on their own, you know, between cut meat and be ready to leave your home and go out into the world. Well, so I have five kids and my oldest is 29 and my youngest is 17. So from my oldest going to college where, you know, we, we did a little more than just drop her off, but we kind of did just drop her off to my subsequent kids. I was expected to sit in parenting sessions at yeah. orientation. And I was like, I don't want to be here. Why am I here? And it, it's it's a whole new industry of catering yeah. to the parents. Well, and it's the schools usually take one of two tacts. I mean, one one approach is let's cater to the parents. Let's acknowledge that they want to be all up in their kids' business and let's just kind of give over to that. The other approach is let's keep the parents informed about the things parents have the greatest right to be interested in, like safety and bill paying and financial aid and, you know, kind of the realms that you'd expect parents in the olden days even to care about. Let's keep them really informed about the ways in which, you know, about their, the topics of greatest concern and the ways in which they can support their students in becoming a more independent actor. So there really are two different approaches. It depends on the, on the school. So question for you, as we look at this new approach to parenting and think about how our kids are uh, integrating that or not not integrating, you know, what's the damage that we're doing along the way? You talk about what's going to happen when they get out there, but talk it through with us. First of all, let me admit, acknowledge there's a short-term win or gain when we overparent, when we're overprotective, we keep them more safe, when we're fiercely directive, aka tiger type forcing them down a path, conditioning our love upon how well they execute our plans for their life. They typically follow that path and it looks like they're making progress and are successful. They never get a zero or a hurt feeling or a scraped knee, you know, because we're sort of always there. So short-term win or short-term gain, long-term pain. The long-term pains are these. First of all, they lack life skills. They've never filled out a form. They've never had a conversation with an authority figure. They've never tracked their own deadlines. They've never had to remember to bring their stuff because we've always kind of rescued them. So they literally don't have the skill. 
And now they're chronologically adult, but they behave in ways that are still sort of childlike. Number two, that then becomes a problem in terms of workplace skills. They're not ready to interact with a boss, a set of colleagues. They really don't know how to complete tasks without a parent reminding them and maybe nudging them and maybe kind of partly handling the task for them. And finally, the greatest harm is to their mental health. Research shows that this over-parenting style is interrupting the natural development of self-efficacy, which is this really important base level sense that we all have to have to be healthy and well. We need to know of our own existence and we learn of our own existence by seeing when I act, there's an outcome. Whether the outcome is good or bad is immaterial. The point is our psyche needs to see the causation. I act, there's a result. When we overparent, we're interrupting the development of self-efficacy, which leads to higher rates of anxiety and depression, which of course we're seeing spiking in children and adolescents and young adults. So we are harming their mental health. A lot of people joke, well, I'd rather have my kid, you know, and I'd rather have them depressed at Yale than happy at some state school. And wow. I think, really, 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 have you really seen depression up close? Yeah. Have you seen anxiety? Is that what you actually want for your child? How how insecure is your ego that you need that outcome for your kid so badly that you're willing to compromise their mental health? But here's the point. When I'm still touring this book, I go out to communities all over the country. I've been to four or five other countries. And I've learned, y'all, Sue and Stephanie, I have learned if I tell my own stories mm. about my terrible decisions and and aha moments, then I'm not lecturing at parents. I'm saying, look what we're doing. I know I love my kids. I know I'm afraid of the world, just like everyone else's. I know I've got a bit of an ego involved in my kids' lives. And when I can speak from this sort of, look what I've done, look at the stupid mistakes I've made, you know, I'm sort of then saying we, and then we're in it together, and then people don't have to be defensive, and we can laugh together, which we do, and we can cry together. And I hope that that helps people, you know, really examine their own behaviors and feel motivated to change some things up. Well, that's the whole reason we did your teen, was to kind of push away the isolation that everyone else is perfect and I'm living an experience all by myself that I can't tell anybody. So you're sharing that. It is really changing the world. And I want to pick up on something you said before, Julie. Why don't we trust that our kids have skills? Well, interestingly, (laughs) this is what I asked in the beginning of this phenomenon. Why don't we, they, these parents, trust their kids have skills? Then I came to appreciate oh, because their kids don't have skills because they've deprived their kid of developing skills because they've done everything for them every step of the way. Let me give you some visuals. When your 12-month-old is sitting down at this lovely shape sorter box toy with all the cut-out shapes, and they've got the little cylinder toy that goes in a cylindrical shape. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I love that toy. toy. (laughs) I love it, The right way to do it to teach your child is to say, oh, look at this new toy we've got. Isn't this wonderful? I wonder how it works. And then you put your own hand on a block and, you you know, the, the rectangle, and you're like, does it fit here? No. Does it fit here? here. Oh, look, it fits here. Drop it, boom. Then sit back. The over-parenting method of handling this is to sit next to your child and kind of say, oh, do you want to pick up that round one? I wonder where the round one goes. Does the round one go in the round hole? I wonder. And then nudge her with your shoulder, like pick up the round one, pick up the round one. (laughs) And then maybe even put your hand on her hand and lovingly squeeze her hand so she picks up the cylinder and lift it and put it right over the cylinder hole and have her sort of drop it in the cylinder as you press down on her hand and then go, perfect, great job. 
BS. I call BS. <laughs> Your kid did not do that. Your kid has learned nothing other than, oh, mom will always show up and help me do this. Interrupting self-efficacy. <laughs> Okay, let's advance to age 11. You're always unscrewing the sports drink. You know, your kid plays soccer. Your kid is on whatever team. They're thirsty. You've brought that. You've, you're the parent that brought the organic gluten-free <laughs> bagels that you made in your own backyard, you know, and and you've, you're unscrewing the sports drink and handing it to them. That's why they don't have the small, fine motor skill or strength to unscrew <laughs> bottles. Okay, look, we're infantilizing our children. We're turning them into veal. Of course, by the, you know, they're chronologically grown at 18, 22, 25, but we know they can't do a damn thing because we've always been there, okay? We're undercut. In, we're supposed to teach them to do for themselves. Instead, if we're overparenting, we have done the opposite. We have fostered a dependency on us. So you mentioned earlier that we live in a world where our children's success is our success. Our, that's our parenting report card. So if that's the world, how do we move out of the way and say that, you know, really change this scenario and let our kids' successes be theirs and get out of the way? Get a life and maybe your kid can have one too. <laughs> We are needing therapy. We are unwell. We are insecure. Our children's achievements have become our sense of worth. So what the point is, we need some sense of who we are that has nothing to do with how our kids are performing in the classroom or on the playing field or at the recital or wherever, okay? We need lives that are full and rich that include work, Volunteer work, hobbies, loving relationships, you know, with a partner, uh, friendships. We need, you know, we need a life. And instead, we've decided our entire purpose is to manufacture this kid, almost like they're, you know, they've, they're a racehorse that's going to run the Kentucky Derby or they're a dog that's going to be in the Westminster Dog Show where really you know, we're the one that's going to stand up and get the prize money and get the rose bouquet and, and stand on the top of the podium. Okay. We, we act like they're our pets, our project that really reflects on our skills. And ouch, so we have ouch. to, right. <laughs> Think about micromanagement in the workplace. Okay. None of us is supposed to micromanage if we're managers. It doesn't make employees feel very good. It makes them feel like they're in a cage. They're constantly being watched. You don't trust them. You don't think they ha their ideas have any merit, right? We're supposed to give people some instruction set some expectations and back off and see how they do and let them try it. And, you know, if it didn't go great, you know, you tell them what did go well, and then you give them some feedback of what they can work on to be stronger, better, faster, whatever next time. That's what we're supposed to be doing. It isn't rocket science. And when we can disengage our own egos, like, am I a good parent today? Did I, did I bring my kid's backpack to school? Did I help with the homework so that she's going to get an A? Did I yell at the coach? You know, we have to stop seeing value in those things and instead delight in, oh my goodness, she finally, she learned to remember her backpack. She got a zero yesterday because she didn't bring her homework, but she remembered it today. That's the parenting win. Let life teach your kid the consequences that attend actions. That's how her or his or their brain learns to do it differently next time. So I would say, as I also have a senior right now, and getting rejected from most of his schools put him really in a place of, um, I wondered how he would respond. And he, I don't think he looks at himself like he was a loser. I think Good. he looks at himself like, I'm going to go with where I'm going and I'm going to make it great. That is fantastic. So, And I think part of it is the 
the college scandal. I think that my kid and my family benefited from it because it was so extreme that it had to put a little bit of perspective for all of us. I think it did. I love that your son feels that way. I want to contrast him to some other kid I know about who didn't come out of his room for days because he, quote unquote, hadn't gotten in anywhere. He had gotten into places like Indiana University and Northeastern, a few other places. And when I heard this story, I just said to the person who was telling me, I said, stop. The schools he's gotten into are wonderful schools. The only reason he's not coming out of his room is because the adults in his life and his peers have made him feel that those schools are not somehow worthy. And we, society, our narrative has kind of imposed that on him. He's obviously wanted to apply to those schools because he did in the first place. But now, you know, since those are the only schools he got into, somehow he's like, I must be a loser since I didn't get into these other schools. Therefore, the schools that admitted me must be loser schools. It's this kind of weird tautology. And uh, so I'm thrilled for your son that he's feeling like I'm in charge. I'm going to make the best of the opportunity I've been given. And, you know, that's the right attitude to take out into the world, whatever you're doing. Well, you you are fantastic. We want to be your friend. If you're (laughs) ever in Cleveland, thanks so much. (laughs) Thanks, Julie. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for the Your Team podcast. If you have any topics that you want us to talk about, let us know on our Facebook page or email editor at yourteenmag.com. Your Team with Sue and Steph is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Special thanks to executive producer Michael D'Aloya, plus producer Hannah Leach and audio engineer Eric Coltnow. You can find more from us at yourteenmag.com, at evergreenpodcast.com, or anywhere you listen to podcasts. And don't forget, if you like today's podcast, please leave us an iTunes review. Help other parents find our podcast. We'll see you next time. Hello, and welcome to Guilty Greeny. I feel like we should start off this show by saying it's nearly impossible to be 100% sustainable given the current world we live in. How do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Not a great analogy for a vegetarian, but you know. We're talking uh, about sustainability, (laughs) maybe not the best analogy. Don't eat the elephant is the first rule of the guilty green. There's your first challenge of the week. Avoid (laughs) elephants. What they used to call frugal is now considered sustainable. That's such an aha moment. Frugal to sustainable. You can save money and help the planet. That's going to be our new tagline for sure. You can find Guilty Greenie on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast platform you prefer. And join us in tackling the Guilty Greenie challenges. Until then, stay curiously green. Green.